Hello and welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. Reading today from the Free Grace Broadcaster. I read this once a month when it comes to my house. Actually, once a quarter. The last quarter when I read this, they was talking about the role of the husband and the directives in the scripture given to the husband to love his wife and so on. This edition is given to a wife's respect. Quoting from Ephesians 5.33, And the wife... See that she reverence her husband. I'm going to read to you from the letter that they sent. By the way, you need to need to go to them and ask them to send you uh, some of these things. You can go to um, chapellibrary.org. You can go to uh, the email chapel at mountzion.org. And they will, uh, you know, at, at your request, start sending you things free uh, that uh, are just compilations of different men of God through the years. I do hope that you will avail yourself of that opportunity. But from the letter, Dear Brethren, Charles Spurgeon mentioned the following text in one of his sermons. It says, Let the wife see that she reverence her husband. Well, as an experienced pastor with keen insight to human experience, he commented, I've sometimes thought that, that must be somewhat difficult for some wives to do. There's not been very much to reverence in their husbands. Still, they're bound to do it as far as it is possible. His adverb, somewhat, is perhaps one of the great understatements of all time. Furthermore, his thought about some wives is a shocking reality among professing Christians, a devastating cancer to the health of any church, and a severe dishonor to the perfect husband, the Lord Jesus. Among Christ's blood-bought people, it should not be so. A wife's role in marriage is to be a beautiful, living symbol of Christ's church. As the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything, Ephesians 5.24. When one has a proper biblical understanding of this, it's a glorious, exalted role. Christ has given her an altogether lovely but daunting task. Her relationship with her husband should look like Christ and his bride, a king, and his queen, not a master and his slave. Far too many men do not understand this, which proves Spurgeon's comment painfully true. Faithful Christian wives must and will do what they can to respect their husbands, who are often unworthy of their wife's reverence. Some husbands are abdicators and by their absent leadership force their wives into the decision-making and leadership of the home. This is not what Christ intended. The church does not govern Christ the head. On the other hand, some husbands are authoritarians that domineer and straitjacket their wives or that tyrannically crush every joy out of the role the Lord Jesus has appointed them. This is not Christ's intention either. He wants his bride to know joy unspeakable and full of glory. Both sorts of men are disgraces to the command of Christ. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Oh, how often a wife's countenance reveals that her husband's headship makes her sorry she was born a woman. With such a noble, pure, and holy part in marriage, it's a tragedy beyond words that those who should love and adore their wives are often the cause of their greatest sorrow and of their remorse for having married. Christ died upon Calvary's cross to cleanse his bride and present her to himself without spot 
or wrinkle. Now, with all the confusion in our culture about what a woman is, yes, and entire books are written today, trying their best to define the idea of woman and what her role in society should be, few turn to the God-breathed testimony of Scripture for the answers. And when they do, they often run to find a commentary, a pastor, a book, a sermon, or a movement to tell them that the Scriptures don't really mean what they say, that God wants wives to submit to their husbands and to respect them. That's the testimony of the inspired, infallible Word of God. It's the will of God. And it goes on to say, well, let me just continue reading. For this reason, we offer the latest issue of the Free Grace Broadcaster. Horatius Bonar offers an encouraging look at the creation narratives of Genesis and draws parallels with New Testament authors regarding husband and wife, Christ and church. In a single page, Thomas Vincent enumerates the general responsibilities of a wife. He goes on then to tell what you're going to be hearing, these different men of God, and what they have spoken about this. We pray that the free grace broadcaster on a husband's love, coupled with a wife's respect, will help Christ's people everywhere to glimpse something of the beauty of marriage when it reflects his sacrificial love and headship of his eternally loved bride, the church. Ponder well the God-appointed roles of husband and wife. That's from Jeff Pollard of Mount Zion Bible Church. Again, get in touch with them yourself and, and have them send you this material. And so let us begin. We'll start with Horatius Bonar, a Scottish Presbyterian minister from the 19th century, he lived from 1808 to 1889. He was a hymn writer also. You may have seen some of his hymns. Born in Edinburgh, Scotland, UK. His scripture is Genesis 2, 21 to 23. I'm sure you all know. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had made, taken from man, he made a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The peculiar process adopted by the Creator in forming the help suitable was to intimate to man the nature of the companion presented to him and the closeness of the tie between them. Adam was thrown into a deep sleep which made him insensible to pain, although perhaps not unconscious of what was passing. When in this state God took one of his ribs and fashioned out of it a woman, healing the wound at once, then God brought her to Adam, revealing at the same time to him the history of her formation. Adam recognizes Jehovah's gracious purpose in this. He, he feels the void supplied. He acknowledges the oneness between himself and her. He gives her a name expressive of this. Her name is to be woman, Isha, derived from his own man, Ish, man. Then follows the historian's statement regarding the oneness of the two and man's duty to make this tie paramount. The marital relationship is closer than the filial. All other bonds must yield to this, however sacred and tender they may be. The words of the 24th verse are evidently not the words of Adam himself, 
but the comment of Moses upon the words of Adam. And a greater than Moses has enlarged this comment, quote, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The two shall be one flesh. So then they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. That's in uh, Mark 10, 6 to 9. Therefore, with one or two further remarks, we leave this passage. First, as to Adam's sleep, it was a heavy or deep sleep. It was a sleep sent directly from God. It was a sleep for a special end. In the case of Abraham and Daniel, we see the same thing. A deep sleep from God fell on both of these when God designed to communicate visions to them. In their case, God caused them to sleep that he might show them what was to be done, whereas in the case of Adam, that he might actually do the thing. In both instances, the individuals were rendered unconscious to outward things by that which we call sleep. And in that state, God took possession of them. In Abraham's and Daniel's case, possession of the soul. In Adam's case, possession of the body. It would seem to be intimated that God could not accomplish his design until Adam had been brought into that state that approaches nearest to death. There must be sleep in the first Adam before God can take out of him the ordained spouse. And there must be death in the second Adam before God could take out of him the chosen bride. In this way, there might be something prefigurative in Adam's sleep. Secondly, as to the taking of woman out of man, as it was God that caused Adam to sleep, so it was God himself that took the rib out of him. Thus, God shows himself to us at once, the great proposer and the great doer of all things. Second causes, as we speak, are but the mysterious tools or instruments that he makes use of in carrying out his designs. He lays us to sleep each night, and he awakens us each morning with his own loving hand. He is the God of our nights and of our days. It was from Adam that God took the substance that he meant to fashion into woman, indicating that as man was formed first and as woman sprang from man, so man is to be her head, he from the dust, she from him. He directly from the former's hand, he, she indirectly and through him. Adam, says the apostle, was forced, first formed and then Eve. Therefore, he says, she is not to teach or to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Thus again, he states the gradation. First, the head of the woman is the man. Second, the head of the man is Christ. Third, the head of Christ is God. Further, he adds that the woman is the glory or ornament of the man. For he says, the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Such is God's order of things. Such his assignment of place and rank to the creatures that he has made. We may be sure that there is a reason for this gradation, not merely a typical, but a natural one, whether we fully understand it or not. We cannot alter this law and be blameless. We cannot reverse it and not suffer loss. 
The construction of our world's fabric is far too delicate and complex for man to attempt the slightest change without dislocating the whole. One star displaced, one planet thrown off its orbit will confound the harmonies of space and strew the firmament with the wrecks of the universe. Likewise, one law lost sight of or set at naught will mar the happy order of God's living world below. In one age or nation, man treads down woman as a slave. In another, he idolizes her and sings of her as a goddess. Both cases inflict a social wrong upon the race. In the latter case, as truly as in the former, And who can say how deep an injury, both spiritual and social, has been wrought and how fatal an influence has been sent forth by that that fond sentimentalism that impregnating our poetry and coursing like fever through the veins of youth not only costs the fresh blood dear, but saps the whole social system. Nay, propagates a principle of subtle ungodliness and creature worship in its praise of woman's beauty and idolatry of woman's love. Thirdly, as to the taking of woman from the side of man, uh, from neither extremity of Adam's body did God take the woman, signifying that she was neither to be man's lord nor man's drudge, but his fellow, With this inferiority only, she was taken out of him, and therefore he was to be her head. From the part that lies nearest his heart did woman come. She was not so much to partake of man's intellectual as of his loving nature. It was not from man's thinking forehead or sinewy arm that she sprang, but from those parts where it may be said that there is the least of man to be found. From the region where the warm blood flows, the heart throbs, the pulses take their rise, and the fountain of life wells up, did woman come. From that quarter of man's being, where in all ages affection has been conceived to make its home, where joy and sorrow have their flowings and reflowings, where fear and hope are each hour sinking and swelling, did woman come. The fragrant plumage of the turtle dove tells us out of what spice grove she has come. So does woman's tender nature of itself declare that it is from the region of the kindly and the gentle that she has been brought forth. As it was out of the bosom of the Father that the eternal Son came down to us, laden with the Father's love, as it was out of the bosom of the Son that the church came forth, at once the object and the reflection of his mighty love. So it was out of man's side, man's bosom, that she came forth, who was to be at once the embodiment of his gentler affections, the being round whom these affections were to cling. And as it was on the high priest's breast, his, his place of love, that the names of Israel rested in jeweled splendor, So is it on man's breast that woman is to rest. And so it is hereafter on the breast of the eternal bridegroom that the church is to repose in more than earthly glory. In that day, when his left hand shall be under her head and his right hand shall embrace her, then she shall be set as a seal upon his heart, as a seal upon his arm forever. 
Fourthly, as to the making of woman from a rib of man, one of those protecting circles that prevents the sinking in of the flesh upon the heart and gives the heart full room to play was to be taken out entirely, that out of it woman might be formed. The bone and the flesh were both taken, the softer and more solid parts of man's body, that it might be seen how truly she was of man's very nature, though in some respects different. Not a separate being formed out of the dust in which man could not recognize a part of himself, but a being thoroughly identified with him. Not merely like him, but one with him, so that her absence would be the absence of a part of himself, a blank, a void, without whom he would be incomplete. Thus woman, taken from the very shrine of man's corporeal sanctuary, for the apostle teaches us to call our bodies temples, is linked with all the sacred or tender associations that are called up by that well-known but mysterious word, heart. Fifthly, as to the making of the woman, the expression is a very peculiar one. It is neither of the two former that have been already employed, created or made, but it's literally builded. The word is a very common one occurring about 400 times, but here only in so peculiar a sense. It's the word used referring to the building of a city, a house, a family, a temple, a throne, an altar, and such like. And there's surely some signification in applying such a word to the formation of woman. Of man, it is said he was made, but of woman, she was builded. Now, man was the type of Christ, and of the latter, in referring to his human nature, it might be said simply that he was made, formed at once. But the woman signifies the church taken out of the wounded side of her dying Lord. And of the church, it is often said she is builded in whom, says the apostle, all the building fitly framed together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. And again, for the edifying, literally the building of the body of Christ. Now, by the term building applied to the formation of Eve, God has thought fit to shadow forth to us the process by which age after age, the church, which is the second Eve, was to be fashioned into a help suitable or a counterpart for Christ, the second Adam. And yet, as the second Adam was far more glorious than the first, so does the second Eve, taken out of his pierced breast, far transcend the first, God in all respects bestowing more cost and pains upon the new creation than upon the old. For redemption has brought in not simply a new order of things, but one far higher than that which it is designed to replace, the one being earthly, the other heavenly the one fleshly, the other spiritual, the one human, the other divine. And thus, the church, Christ's chosen bride, springing from his smitten side, is builded, builded by the same almighty hands that built the wondrous heavens, builded as was the temple of old without sound of axe or hammer, builded at once as the city of the Lamb's special habitation and the companion for his dearest fellowship, without whom 
this goodly universe would have been incomplete to him. For even in it, though renewed and glorified, it would have been found that it was not good for him to be alone. Jesus we're speaking of. For him, no help suitable could have been found had not the Father provided this glorious church and had not he himself, in the greatness of his longing for that help suitable, consented to sleep the deep sleep of death upon the cross, that thus she might be taken out of him, whose beauty, as seen pictured in the Father's purpose, had already ravished his heart. Her presence alone could have been making even the, the better paradise complete, and his heart's desire was union with her, throughout eternity. Number six, as to the closing up of the flesh instead of what was taken out, Adam was not to be the loser in any way or sense, but the gainer. All deficiency was replaced, all loss supplied. God would teach him the nature of woman and the object of her creation, wrapping up in this also a type of things to come. But he would teach it in a way that would not leave man the sufferer, Jacob's lesson was to be learned by halting on his thigh all his life after, but Adam's was to be learned by looking at his suitable helper, and then while remembering how she had been builded, to feel that she had cost him nothing beyond the sleep into which he had been so mysteriously thrown. Asleep, but nothing more. This was all the price for a boon so precious. No abiding pain, loss, weakness. He was still the same Adam as when he came from the hands of his maker. Neither has the second Adam suffered loss for us. It did indeed cost him much to redeem us. It cost him a darker, sadder, and more troubled sleep than Adam's. But it's all over now. He retains nothing of the weakness, sorrow, or darkness of his low estate. He is not less the king of glory because he was once the humbled Jesus. He does indeed appear in heaven a lamb as it had been slain. He may perhaps retain the wounds of the cross, but more than this, nothing. All other traces of his humiliation are erased. He's lost nothing by the bride that he has gained. No, he has won much for his weakness, sorrow, shame, when here, have bought for him new strength, gladness, and glory. Hence the song of angels, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Number seven, as to the woman's introduction to the man, he brought her unto the man. God himself, as if standing in a father's room and acting the father's part, brings the bride to the bridegroom. As a beloved daughter, he presents her to her future husband. He joins their hands and pronounces over them the marriage blessing. Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. A stranger and yet no stranger. A part of himself, the filling up of his being, she was brought before him and knit to him in inseparable bonds. And it is thus that the true Eve speaks of herself in the song of Solomon, The king hath brought me into his chambers. And again, he brought me to the banqueting house. Of her also it is written in the Psalms, she shall be brought unto the king in clothing of needlework. 
And again, that she is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband in Revelation 21. One of her special characteristics is that she is given of the Father to the Son. And in that day, when he comes in his glory, she shall be caught up to meet him in the air and be brought into his presence by the Father, there to have the marriage service celebrated and as a chaste virgin to be presented to him to whom she had been so long betrothed. Then shall that song be sung to which all the new creation shall echo. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And finally, number eight, as to Adam's recognition of her. Whether by revelation or consciousness, we don't know. But Adam knows the woman thus brought to him and calls her woman as being a part of man. This is his response to God's introduction of her. He acknowledges the oneness and receives her as himself. We have God's consent in bringing, the woman's consent in coming, and now we have Adam's consent in receiving. Thus is the marriage completed by the full concurrence of all. And so it is with the second Adam, too. He receives and owns his bride. He welcomes her as indeed part of himself, one with himself. Both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Again it is written, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones thus recognizing the mysterious oneness between himself and his bride, he expresses his admiration of her beauty as the fairest among women, all glorious within. She responds with joy and speaks of him as fairer than the children of men. Thou art all fair, my love, there is no spot in thee, is the utterance of his admiring love of her. And she replies, my beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand his head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is altogether lovely. Song of Solomon's 5 and 15. 5 and verses 10 and 11 and 15 and 16. Now, in the happy consciousness of possessing him and his love, she gives vent to the deep feeling of her satisfied soul when she says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies until the day break, and the shadows flee away. All of that from Horatius Bonar in a book called Earth's Morning or Thoughts on Genesis. My, my. And that book and that article is in the public domain, by the way. Wow. Thank God for these men who saw things that we don't see as much as we ought to. Keep reading your New Testament for sure, but every once in a while a man of God can open up that New Testament for you. I want you to go to my website where you're already at, I hope, and look at that long series on North Korea. Part of the Bride of Christ, your brothers and sisters suffering intensely this very day. Would you pray for them and learn more about them on my website? It's all over it. And a bunch of other things that I won't go into right now, but do do examine the, the website. I think you'll find much to bless you there. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we will talk again soon. Bye-bye.